Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. I do my daily four-shot cappuccino. Oh, my gosh. Four-shot? Yeah. Four, yeah. And, and then, that's after a couple of cups of coffee. He, and then he comes in like this. <laughs> as soon as I walk <laughs> into the coffee shop, they start making it because they know what I want. You're hardcore. Hey, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, she's the only person in California to have served as both Speaker of the Assembly and President of the Senate in the past century and a half. As Tony Atkins prepares to hand over the gavel, she joins us to reflect on her career in Sacramento so far. Yeah, we'll see. There's more ahead. The San Diego Democrat has broken several glass ceilings as a woman and an open lesbian. And there's talk she might try to break another one with a possible run for governor in 2026. We'll talk to her about the possibility of that, the new state budget unveiled this week, and her path from growing up in Appalachia to the top of the California state legislature. But first, Scott... As you know, I was in Sacramento yesterday. You were watching from here the governor unveiling, I think, his sixth budget. And um, it's not as rosy as his first couple, let's say. Yeah, but not as bad as a lot of us thought it might be. No, right? It was, right. uh, we had, all of us have been, he chastised the media for this, reporting that it had been uh, expecting a $68 billion That's not our fault. Shortfall. The LAO said that. Yeah, I mean, you know, they could have given us a different number, but they did yesterday, finally. But uh, the number that the governor and the Department of Finance say it's going to be is $38 billion, which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at, no. but definitely a little more manageable. Uh, they're going to knit, do some nips and tucks. They're going to defer some payments, push things off to the future, uh, dip into those reserves a bit. But really, you know, not a sense of crisis. I no. mean, we've seen some really bad budget years over the past uh, decade plus. And this really, at least at the moment, isn't one of those things. But we should say it's, a, it's there's, this is all kind of speculative. Yeah. Well, you can also tell, though, like how it's not a return to 10, 15 years ago by the reaction from advocates. Right. So everybody from folks who advocate for people in poverty, environmental activists, um, education folks. I mean, there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of uncertainty. To your point, there are some proposed cuts. But I think um, there's a sense, I think, too, that this as this process works out, you know, that some of them might be able to score a few victories and that the numbers actually could change again because, you know, I think really the governor laid this out. And if you've been a student of press conferences on budgets for the last 20 years, as I have, it happens every year. But this idea that like, our tax base is so tied to capital gains is so really tied to the stock market and, and to the, the wealthy. And he showed that graph of like these spikes over the last 20 years. And you do have years like 2021 where, you know, we ended up with a hundred billion dollar surplus the next year. Yeah. And some of that, you know, peaks. we were helped, of course, by some of those federal dollars from COVID. Absolutely. Those have yeah. run out. You know, the one constituency that did seem to be pretty unhappy environmentalists uh, because some of that those uh, trims are going to come from, you know, the, the, the commitment the state has made to clean energy programs. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I was reflecting on that. And, you know, California. 
California, I think you could say no state is more committed to green energy and uh, you know climate change policies and so on. And yet even here, that is where the governor went to try to trim some money. And I think it shows the difficulty of um, you know prioritizing something that doesn't immediately affect people the way, say, homeless funding does or health care for people who are undocumented. Yeah. Those think, those cuts yeah. really immediately affect folks. I think you could also say, and our, our guest might push back on that, that, you know, a lot of like the state has really had an ambitious plan and there's a lot of investments that are still happening. And, you know, a lot of what I think the governor is proposing is deferring some of these to later years, you know, making these cuts for commitment. now. Um, but yeah, I think you see this with like, remember that elusive... Uh, infrastructure deal in Congress that took like a decade to get done. I mean, it's hard. Like people like these things, but they're they are hard to, I think, rationalize to your point when there's immediate needs that that, you know, need money as well. Um, all right. Just a, a minute left here. Uh, the, the governor got especially exercised yesterday over the wealth tax. Yes, got. he did. Yeah, he he was chastising, bristled at all the coverage, especially from the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which I know we all read on a daily basis. I didn't even know basis, that had come out, but yeah. Uh, saying that, you know, he's been getting calls from his friends about what's this about a wealth tax that would affect like people with a billion dollars in assets around the world. Uh, obviously, yeah, as you said. My friends called me too. It's so funny. They, they, they all said, my what's billionaire. The tax? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it, it did get a hearing, actually, this idea of a wealth tax, uh, and it quietly died uh, without even a vote, I think, yeah, yesterday. So, you know, uh, he's obviously very sensitive to California's image as a high tax state. And that was interesting that that's how he pulled it out. He basically framed that op-ed as a a, a sort of a pointed attack on California that is aimed at its reputation, not just sort of a policy disagreement with conservatives. Fear-mongering. Yeah. yeah, Always fun when Newsom gets a little exercised. Uh, All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by the top dog in the state Senate for now, President Pro Tem Tony Atkins. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today, we are thrilled to have with us a woman who broke multiple glass ceilings of sorts at the state capitol, not literal ceilings. Today, San Diego <laughs> they do have Dem- glass ceilings they there. <laughs> Today, San Diego Democrat Tony Atkins is president pro tem of the state Senate. It's a job she was elected to after serving two years as Speaker of the State Assembly, the first person to ever hold both of these positions in this century or last, I think. Tony Atkins, welcome <laughs> back to the Political Breakdown. Hey there. Well, thank you. It was good to hear your opening discussion on the budget. Yeah, well, we want to hear what you thought. Yeah, what did we miss? Yeah, anything we uh, misstated or missaid or just anything you want to add? Well, I think you laid it out very well. Uh, You know, it is uh, a better outlook than we anticipated. And I was using that $68 billion deficit. So we got that from a combination of the LAO and 
Department of Finance, uh, worst case scenario. But uh, I do think we still have to be cautious and mindful. We don't know what the outlook will be when we get the revenue uh, projections in May from the tax receipts from last year. But, um, you know, it is kind of interesting. When I got to the legislature in 2010, uh, Jerry Brown was governor. We had a $26 billion deficit, and that $26 billion felt immense. It was a much bigger percentage of the budget than, than we have it, now. It, it was, and we had to deal with real cuts that affect real people's lives, to your point, Scott, when you opened up. Um, this deficit uh, today, we have a variety of tools that you mentioned, um, you know, uh, deferring one-time projects and, and funds, um, you know, a, a variety of tools that we've always used. But what we didn't have back then was a rainy day fund that the voters supported Governor Brown and the legislature in that created this $37.8 billion reserve. We have a Prop 98 reserve for education. We put in place a health care reserve and our regular reserve. So I think a decade of building back and putting new things in place like the rainy day fund and reserves gives us the ability, ability not to make cuts that really impact people's lives. We know that our tax system is volatile. And so changing that takes probably a vote of the people. We've had conventions and conferences talk about that, but this is a good place to be despite the deficit. We can work with this while being cautious. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, you've worked with three governors. You worked, Schwarzenegger was there. Oh, it wasn't he there no. when you got there? Oh, he was already on no, the way I, out. I came in with Governor Brown. Okay. So yeah. two governors, I've negotiated eight budgets with two different governors with two very different perspectives. So, well, well, that's what yeah, I wanted what to ask you about. Difference? Like, what do you think is the difference? I mean, Gary, Jerry Brown, of course, was known as being frugal, austere, uh, often would lowball revenue uh, estimates uh, so he didn't have to be forced to spend more. Uh, how would you right. describe those differences between him and Governor Newsom? Well, the difference is he came in with a real structural $26 billion deficit. And we had no choice uh, but to figure out what to do going forward. And I, I really compliment, I loved working with Jerry Brown. And yes, he was very frugal. <laughs> and I, had that I wish he had been a little more, um, you know, supportive of, but he did it for a reason. And I think the legislature, uh, we are in the position we're in today because of that work a decade ago. And um, I do think uh, Gavin Newsom has a different approach. But he has been uh, forewarning caution for the last year and a half, frankly, and you've seen some of the actions he's taken has reflected that. Yeah. We, you mentioned the $100 billion surplus uh, in 2022 that fast uh, yeah. went away, but we were able to put real, real significant investments into infrastructure, into climate, uh, into making sure we had the kind of reserve and into healthcare and homelessness and housing and mental health. So I think uh, the difference is uh, Governor Newsom, having been an executive and a mayor in San Francisco, he came with ideas, big ideas to actually tackle big problems. And thankfully, because of the last decade, he and the legislature has had the ability to, to really tackle some of those things very significantly. So I do want to ask um, about 
two two things before we move on to the budget. One is this $350 million in, quote, legislative priorities that he has on the cut list. Our understanding right. is that does include the minimum wage for healthcare workers, this increase. And since he unveiled this budget, there's been some reporting that his administration had sort of made a, an agreement with the unions that pushed that minimum wage hike, that there could be a delay depending on state finances. Uh, can you just talk about your understanding of that kind of agreement and like what that means? Are we talking just about uh, wages for state workers? Is this the whole healthcare industry that could see a delay? Is there a political danger there? Like, how do you see this? Well, you know, I, I think that there was the acknowledgement as we, as the governor's office with the stakeholders, including members of the legislature, um, a, a few members of my leadership team, that there could be, you know, pending the budget and the revenue outlook, there could be, there could be some issues that we would have to address. Of course, when you're getting a deal done, you don't exactly think about the worst case scenario. You, you get the deal done. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be a part of negotiations as we go into the governor's. Uh, what he did was give us a proposal, his proposed budget. And you're going to see uh, as we move into the budget discussion, this becomes the negotiation between all parties, the speaker, the pro tem, the, the budget committees and the governor. And so I think uh, we have the time to hear the presentations and see what the impact will be on any number of things from the wages. I think the impact, uh, if we're not able to realize that, um, you know, workers had a particularly hard couple of years mm-hmm. in all in all sectors, healthcare for sure. Um, you know, those on the front line, fast food, uh, trying to keep their jobs and serve food, uh, pretty devastating. So I think the workers have felt like we need to see a little more support from our right, government. And some of these organizations have their own labor agreements, right? So if Kaiser Correct. struck a deal, that their wages are going to go up anyway. Right. And so that impacts the entire market. Right. And you know, guys don't want to be... Government. And, and you see the governor's office negotiating with different bargaining unit, units. We, we ratify some of those or just kind of... Uh, hear them. But um, it really is important, the negotiations. And we want to try to honor those agreements. I mean, this is real people's lives. And these are not high paid. No, we're talking like 15 to $25 over several years here, you know, right. an hour. and try to live on $25 an hour right. in San Diego or San Francisco, exactly, or most yeah. of the state, really. Yeah. yeah. Anywhere. I want to ask you a question. Uh, this is more policy, perhaps than budget, but about Prop 47. Marisa actually asked the governor a question about that yesterday at his press conference. There's been a lot of discussion in the legislature uh, for years, but really this year it seems to have some momentum of maybe amending parts of it or at least addressing some of the concerns raised by critics of Prop 47 uh, around things like retail theft, auto theft, uh, especially that secondary market for stolen stuff. How do you see the mood of the legislature right now uh, around those questions uh, about things like that. And do you guys want to go back to voters? I mean, open this up. Yeah. Well, I think it depends on which legislator you ask mm-hmm. that question of. I mean, there was a lot of discussion that went into Prop 47 and putting it on the ballot for the voters to vote for. And the voters have seen it twice. I mean, they reaffirmed at one point. I think the discussion needs to be um, substantive and real about what is Prop 47 really? I think there's been a lot of uh, misinformation about uh, the various uh, uh, crimes, 
thresholds. Thank you, Scott. And I think what you're seeing in terms of the governor's response is he's he's suggesting a package of pieces of legislation to address retail theft and really try to hit at the very essence of what's happening and who the people are who are committing the crimes. Well, and a lot you of know? what he's talking about doesn't really have anything to do with 47. Do you do you support he, where he's he, going? He, you know, I support the conversation. Absolutely. Because I think the 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 47 plus this package of bills, he is trying to hit at the very essence of what communities are feeling. And he is saying that it's not necessarily 47. It's not a panacea to send it back and correct this piece or that piece if it doesn't get directly to the crime and the criminals that are really a threat to um, to communities. Okay. Well, yes. Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, I was just going to say, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, our guest, State Senate President Tony Atkins, a title she'll hold for a few more weeks. And then she'll hand the gavel to fellow Democrat Mike McGuire, uh, um, who represents a district from Marin County up to the Oregon border. Yeah. And I want to ask you about that uh, because uh, you announced uh, a very... Um, not, uh, without a lot of drama, let's say that, uh, <laughs> that there would be a leadership change. You'd be handing it off to Senator McGuire in February. And, I, you know, we couldn't help but notice the contrast between that and what happened in the Assembly, where there was a very bitter behind-the-scenes fight between the outgoing Speaker Rendon and the new one, Robert Rivas. What, what, what did you learn from that sort of power struggle and the way it left the Democratic caucus uh, in the Assembly? Well, Scott, this is my fourth transition. So mm-hmm. I've had a little practice. Uh, I might say. Uh, I would also say that, um, you know, the Assembly and the Senate are different bodies. They're different animals, different cultures. There's more people in the Assembly. Uh, And I would also say that Mike McGuire has been a member of my leadership team for the last six years or five and a half. I'm almost at six years. So, um, you know, uh, there was no need for drama. Uh, I mean, the, the Senate had its conversation. There were candidates. We worked through it. Uh, when I saw the tra- when I saw the rhythm and, and how this was proceeding, it just seemed logical to move on. Uh, transition is going to happen. Uh, I don't like drama. Uh, we had work to do. It was, you know, towards the end of session. So, I mean, I feel very proud of the Senate, our process, and I look forward. Uh, Mike is going to step into this role and we're just not going to miss a beat. Can I ask you, though, I mean, you, as we've mentioned, you know, made a lot of first in your elections um, as leader and and just in general. As we said at the top, you grew up in Appalachia. I think your house didn't even have electricity um, when you were water. a child. We, we water? Had, had you had electricity. <laughs> not, not water. Not, okay. not water. Um, water. And, you know, you've talked very openly about, you know, the challenge gr- coming out and sort of becoming yourself. I just wonder, like, beyond the symbolism of you holding these positions, what do you think you've brought to them? What What are we going to lose not having somebody with that perspective up there? Well, I think we all have stories. And, you know, Mike uh, comes from rural California. He has a story. Um, I believe he has a single mom. Uh, I don't want to. I don't. We'll, we'll get him on the show and have yeah, him. Yeah, do all that. <laughs> He'll tell you his story. I I think, um, you know, it is important to have leadership reflect the diversity of California. And I think more and more you see our legislatures doing that. More women, more Latinos, a larger LGBTQ plus caucus, uh, Jewish caucus, uh, 
the Black Caucus. Uh, I mean, the diversity is real. I think that um, Mike McGuire, Senator McGuire, as he steps into this, he is very uh, mindful of um, other people and uh, representing the broadest uh, constituency that we can. And I see that reflected in his thoughtfulness, how he pro approaches issues. So, you know, you you really want to make sure that there's room for all perspectives. Um, and I think diversity and inclusion is going to continue to be something really important in the Senate. You will see that reflected in probably his leadership team. I'm sure he'll talk about that. Yeah. Adam you know, we in California nationally, by virtue of who is in California, we've seen women in charge. We've seen Nancy Pelosi as the speaker versus Kevin McCarthy or Mike Johnson. We've seen uh, as well up in Sacramento now that you have been both speaker and president pro tem. And I'm wondering, you know, I have this theory that women are just simply more collaborative. Uh, they are less confrontational uh, for the sake of confrontation. And I'm wondering, do you feel that, you know, women do have Obviously, it depends on the woman. But do you, in general, do you see some differences in the way women lead a caucus or a, a corporation or whatever it might be? Well, there, there's always exceptions to that, of course, <laughs> as you say. But um, I do. I, I think by the very nature, our culture or uh, our training, we tend to approach the world that way. I mean, I think I probably approach it differently because I'm a twin. So I've always been a we, not a me. I played team sports. I loved it. Um, I prefer to be not in the the front. I like to be uh, leading from the back with a team of folks who are doing it together. But I do think women approach things differently. I do. And um, I, I think it shows. Um, and I think that we all benefit from what we learn from each other. So as I said, Mike has been on my leadership team for six years. Uh, it's it's men and women and we work together and we're deliberative and we have leadership team meetings and we meet before we go on to the floor. And I think it is the dynamic you put in place and the expectation. One of the things I'm proudest of is the demeanor and how we operate in the Senate. We don't all agree. Even the Democrats. We have a very broad spectrum of Democrats from liberal to moderate and everything in between. And we have Republicans. We all came to represent a constituency. I think the tone and demeanor and how we treat each other. And I think some of that comes from my background growing up in a conservative rural area. And also when I got to San Diego, serving on a city council that was uh, actually more Republicans than Democrats. Yeah. Now it's all Democrats. Right. <laughs> you, you couldn't get anything done if you weren't willing to work across the aisle. Right. So. So I think it's a combination of experience and, and nurture and nature, Scott, of of how one leads or, or works with other people. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, one thing that you had pushed uh, over your time up there is to repeal well, initially to create a travel ban to states with anti-LGBT policies uh, in the past year or so, you pushed to repeal that uh, ban. How do you see it with the benefit of hindsight? Was it worth doing in the first place? Was it a failure? I mean, you've talked about the unintended consequences. What what were they? What, do we, what have we seen kind of play out? Well, I think, I don't think it, I wouldn't call it a failure. Look, in the job that we're in, in government and legislatively and, and policies and laws, you make mistakes. I, I mean, I certainly, you know, having been speaker and pro tem, I've, I've seen enough uh, mistakes 
in terms of how you do things. Would I call this a mistake or a failure? No, because we made a, a, a significant point at the time when that ban came into place, and I proudly supported it at the time. Um, Assemblymember Lowe carried the banner, and we got this passed, and there were people who did not go to North Carolina based on the discriminatory practices against the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, there were significant, I mean, uh, major sports, major concerts. And I think that it showed a level of support for the people who were there suffering under this discrimination. Um, and I think it did have an impact. But I also think over time, as the politics and the divisiveness across this country gained momentum, and you saw state legislatures do this across the country, when you get to 26 states, you know, that's when I started to think about the little girl in Appalachia at coming out at age 17 and how I had absolutely no positive images of what it would be like to be a member of the community. And I, I, I really reflected on the reaching in and being present and being visible was maybe a better tactic. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. I, I, real quick, though, I wonder if, uh, you know, you you as an openly lesbian person, you have probably noticed a change in your time up there in terms of the way, say, Republicans deal with you. I mean, wh- how would you describe those changes? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my mentor, Chris Kehoe, uh, was the first LGBT person elected to the city council in San Diego. Then she came to the assembly and the Senate. And I remember when she was in the Senate, I think Carol Mignett from uh, San Francisco Uh, produced a film called Political Animals. And you could see how those four uh, lesbian women, when they first came to the legislature, the discussions and how really horrible it was, the the conversations, how people were treated. I am not treated like that by anybody. Uh, Even the most conservative Republicans uh, do not uh, treat me the way Chris and, and Carol and Sheila were treated. Uh, but what's interesting, it, it's sort of a dichotomy because what you see going on across the country. Right. Are I was going to say it's like this weird it's like two because you have members who are introducing some of these anti-LGBT bills. Um, right. But how right. they handle it. All right. We only have a couple minutes left with you and we do yeah. have to ask about what's next. There's a lot of people who want to see you run for governor. Um, I believe you ha- might have a campaign account. What what's your plan and when will you make a decision? Right. Well, thank you. Um I really didn't see while I was pro Tim uh, diverting my focus from that responsibility. It takes everything you have to to do that job. The transition um, really made me look over the last couple of months at what I want to do and how I want to continue to serve. So I am very seriously uh, looking at the option of governor. I have a lieutenant governor's account right now. Um, I I am I am very nearly ready to uh, to make that determination. So I'm not quite ready to comment on it today, but I, I am getting closer. We might wow, have a field sounds... packed with women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is that? You we might have it. a field packed with women. There's already two, right? Eleni Kunalakis and Betty, Betty Yee. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Why do you no, think we I... ha- Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Scott. No, I was going to say, why do you think we haven't had a woman governor? I mean, so many states have. Well, I do think it's time. Uh, for a woman governor. I I believe it is time. California is on the cutting edge of so many things. Uh, I I do believe it's time. I don't know why we haven't. Uh, But I would say um, for me and and my perspective, 
I want to look at how I can continue to serve. I love public service, a service. I love public service. I love the constituents, not necessarily the politics, but uh, <laughs> w- but politics is the very means by which you're able to do the policy and to reflect the values you care about. So it is a means to an end, uh, but it is the people that make a difference. And I'm prepared to continue to serve. I just need to make the determination in what way. When, and very soon. When could we expect that? You say very soon? Very soon. Monday? Very soon. Months, <laughs> Tuesday? Months, not, not years. <laughs> well, not what, years what's, real quick, what's the case you. for not running? Why would you not run? <laughs> you know, it's it's a consideration of family and and practical issues and support. And do you see a viable path? All those things that you do behind the scenes in order when you make that determination, you're you're good to go. Yeah. So uh, I look forward to sharing that news with you very soon. <laughs> All right. We will leave it there. Senate pro tem president Tony Atkins of San Diego. Thank you so much for your time. Thank today. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Don't forget, Political Breakdown is now available every day on the radio and in your podcast feed. Don't forget to check it out. We're having a lot of fun on the other days, too. We are. So, uh, yeah, tune in. Our engineers today are Jim Bennett and Christopher Beale. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.